The next question uh, will be from Eric. Eric's one of our regulars. So you have a couple of questions also. Please go ahead. Thank you, Donna. Uh, great to talk to you again, Tom. Mm -hmm. um, so my question is about uh, entropy reduction. Uh, I'm trying to get a better understanding of how entropy reduction in an information system works. And I think receiving your answer on the following question might be helpful. So you often say that creating an environment of unconditional love is one of the most important things we can do to help others to evolve. Mm -hmm. so, so let's say that a being has the option of incarnating either into a fearful high entropy reality frame or in a loving low entropy reality frame. Would incarnating into the loving low entropy reality frame then not be more beneficial for that being spiritual evolution? If yes, then why would beings ever incarnate into fearful, high-entropy reality frames? In fact, why doesn't LCS just create lots of reality frames that are completely full of copied versions of very low-entropy IUOCs that provide very loving uh, environments so that beings can incarnate into those and grow up very quickly? Okay. I think the thing you're missing about entropy is that... In this consciousness system, the, the system itself has entropy. Okay? It's not a zero entropy system. The system has entropy. We're a part of the system. So we add to that entropy as, you know, at the level of consciousness that we are. Um, the system itself has had to grow up. It has had to move itself from being full of fear and ego mostly ego, not as much fear, but it had a lot of ego. It had to outgrow. So the whole system is evolving forward. And the way a system evolves is by changing itself. Okay, it has to change itself. So if what it did is say, okay, what I can do is I will just uh, take a, I'll take one, one virtual reality that really worked out well and all the people there grew up and it was a very high entropy and I'll delete all the others and I'll just have this one low entropy uh, virtual reality and I'll put all, all the IUCs can go play in that. Well, as soon as all the, let's just say, medium entropy IUCs got into that, well, the entropy level of that reality frame would start to go up. Right? It would start to go up because you'd put a lot of beans in it that didn't have low entropy, that had high entropy. And that, the whole thing would turn around and go the other way. And pretty soon you'd be right back where you started with. So that's not really helpful to just, well, I stick a person who's not grown up into a very grown up place. Yes, it is going to maybe help pull them up. But... And it'll make it easier for them to, uh, to, to grow up. But how solid is that growth? Anything you get that's easy isn't as valuable or as solid or as core to you as stuff you have to do on your own. Okay. So the, the point is you should be in a reality that suits you, that challenges you doesn't challenge you beyond your ability to respond to that challenge, doesn't over-challenge you, 
If it challenges you too much, you tend to get give up and become depressed and go sit in a hole and don't do anything. So it needs to be a challenge that you can meet, that you can deal with. But at the same time, the growing up where you learn the lesson, where you figure it out and you get it, that is very valuable to you. And the more effort you put into getting it, the more secure it is in your being level as far as being yours. Now, we started out with the very first question about a, a man who uh, was uh, narrow-minded and grumpy, got a partner who was open-minded and more happy and became more open-minded and happy and then got narrow-minded and grumpy again. Well, obviously, when they were more open-minded and happy, it wasn't because they changed at a deep level. And they were happier. They did find life was better and uh, happiness was better. They interacted with their relationships were better. They interacted with all the people that were better. So you might say, well, they, they grew up a lot. Not necessarily. What they grew up didn't run that deep. Yes, they were acting better, but they didn't really evolve at the being level that much. Now, they probably did evolve at the being level a little. It was a step forward for them. But it wasn't so much that when they got now to another situation where grumpiness prevailed in their environment, well, they just went right back into grumpiness and narrow-minded and whatever. They went right back to where they were. So it was easy. It, it was nicer for them when they were in an environment that was lower entropy. But they didn't grow up much from that because they didn't really earn it. They kind of had it given to them. All they had to do is act it. It was handed to them. They acted it out. They seemed nicer, but they really were the same person inside. So that's the difference. So if you just took people and you put them all into a, a really low entropy place, if you put many of them in there, they drag that entropy level up, make it higher and higher. If you just put one or two of them in there, well, it would kind of pull them up. But if after a year or two or three or four of maybe or five or six incarnations there, if you took them and put them someplace else, I suspect it would be easier for them to de-evolve because they wouldn't have really learned the lesson so much as they would be acting it because that's the way it was everywhere. You learn through struggle. You learn through efforts. You learn through mistake. And if all you're doing is acting nice because everybody acts nice, and since everybody's really nice to you, there's no reason that you're not nice to everybody, well, that's civilizing, but it doesn't necessarily help you grow up a lot, you see? So putting high-entropy people in a low-entropy environment would give them an opportunity to grow up. That would be better, make it easier for them, but they might not actually grow up much because they wouldn't really have a lot that was challenging them to grow up. They'd just be hanging out in a nicer place without growing a whole lot themselves. And they really wouldn't have to grow much because everybody would be nice to them. So they wouldn't have a lot of ego, ego issues because nobody would be pushing their buttons. You see, they wouldn't have many challenges. So they could grow. Now it would be if they said, okay, I want to become this. 
I don't feel this yet, but I really want to become it. I need to change myself. I'm not high entropy. I mean, I'm not low entropy. I'm high entropy. And here's my opportunity with all these nice people. I'm going to become low entropy and really started working on it. Well, it would be easier in that environment to work on it, perhaps. But it would be harder for them to know even what to work on. They're not getting any challenges there. So what happens is they just kind of hang out to have a good time and not learn a whole lot. So you have to learn through your own change, through your own struggle, through your own ability to see it and become it and be it. That's how you have it. And now you're that. You've changed. You're a different person. So that's the, that's the thing. And, and, you know, here's another uh, different slant on it is that if you have a book and that book has a lot of wonderful things in it, and people read that book, and it's an entropy-lowering book because it helps people solve their problems. Well, just by duplicating that book a 100,000 times doesn't lower the entropy anyplace. Okay, it does in a very uh, trivial way in that you've got a whole lot more books now with, with ordered characters on, you know, ordered ink on pages. You know, you got that little tiny bit of entropy, but that's trivial. It hasn't really changed things. You just have a whole lot of these nice books around. But that isn't enough. People have to want to reach out, grab the opportunity, and do something with it. Otherwise, the book by itself is just a nice book, you see. So that's why you uh, it's an order of change. Our system has a certain entropy level. And it's trying to reduce that level. And the way it has to reduce it isn't by, you know, the, the larger conscious could, system could just say, well, I'm just going to put things in everybody's data stream that makes them happy. That's not going to reduce entropy. That's just going to make everybody happy. But when that stops and they have to go back to reality, they're going to be just the way they were. They just have the appearance of being happy. That's like the first beings who first logged on to this virtual reality. They'd been in the big chat room all the time. And in the big chat room, they didn't have much stress. They didn't have anybody pushing their buttons. Well, they probably did a little, but not too much. It was kind of a very low stress, very low challenge. All their choices just didn't have many consequences kind of an environment. And everybody got along reasonably well and everybody was pretty happy there wasn't a lot of greed and nastiness and whatever going on and then they got here and suddenly they had to make life and death decisions things that had huge consequences and they felt like they just got transported to hell you know everything used to be nice back in the chat room and now look what we've got we're stealing, you're killing each other. We're stealing each other's stuff. You know, we've degenerated into monsters and this is terrible. Well, they didn't degenerate into monsters. They always had that potential to be a monster. They just never had the place that they could express that part of their potential. You see? So it's not like they got to the, this virtual reality and suddenly de-evolved tremendously. They just had the, a lot of potential, and they hadn't evolved or de-evolved much either way. They just still had a lot of potential. And when suddenly they got 
life and death questions when they suddenly had had choices that that really mattered well they found out that what they did is they got very self-centered it was all about them and what they could take and that's who they really were so you don't you don't help the system evolve by making it easy for people to act like they're evolved you make you help the system evolve by giving people challenges and hoping that they meet the challenge and evolve themselves. So that's the difference. Does that help, Eric? Yeah, it does. It's a bit of a complicated uh, topic, I guess. But I'm wondering, does this mean that for some people it might actually be more profitable to um, – grow up with a non-loving family for example like that that that's maybe a challenge that's more relevant for them than growing up in a very loving and kind environment would, would that be yes true? yes and it depends on the individual let's say that you're a beginner in this process then the kind and loving family would be a really good way to start right it helps you in a in an you get an easy lifetime if you will where you don't have huge challenges. The system wants to put you in a situation where you are challenged right up to your maximum ability to deal successfully with that challenge. So the challenge doesn't break you or de-evolve you. So the challenge is something that you have the ability to, to grow from. Okay, so if you're evolved past the point where a nice loving family is what you need, Okay, you've got that. You've been around through and you've had, you know, a thousand of those incarnations with nice loving families and you got all that and you're kind of a nice person and so on. Now you might need to be challenged a little more. You may need to be in something that, that, uh, if you feel like you're grown, you've got quality. See, you've grown up. You've lowered your entropy. You're about love. All right. Let's give you a little challenge and give you the opportunity to grow a little more. So now the family that is a challenging family may be the one for you. And you may always feel like an outsider to that family. You may never really feel like you really fit in or are a part of that because you never really accepted the way they were constantly bickering and constantly, you know, negative and that sort of thing. And you just, you learn to tolerate it. You still love them because they're your family, but you never really related to it. You just kind of floated through that, rejected it, and continued your growth. Well, good for you. You see, big success. You've, uh, you know, you just took another step forward with lower entropy because you handled that well. But let's say you get in that family that's full of negativity and it drags you down. You get nasty. You know, you whatever. Well, now you de-evolved because... You didn't really have that low, you know, you really didn't have that quality you thought you had, or you didn't have mastery of it yet. You hadn't really taken it into yourself, and you weren't it. You were just acting, and maybe partly were it, but not quite. So the system will pick an incarnation from you where you have an optimal chance to grow up and not be dragged down. So that's why they try to fit the spot to the person. And if it's less challenging, well, then there's less opportunity for growth. It's easier. If it's more challenging, well, there's more opportunity for growth, but there's also opportunity for de-evolution. 
You see, you don't get one without the other. <laughs> Opportunity comes with just a two-edged sword. It comes both ways. You have to make the choice to take the low entropy way as opposed to the high entropy way. And that's not a meaningful choice if there is only a low entropy way. <laughs> okay, you have a choice. This low entropy way or another low entropy way. And that's the only choices you have. And you you don't really grow up from that. You have to have that. I choose the low entropy way. I reject the high entropy way. But both of those have to be there available to you for it to be your choice to grow up. If there's only low entropy around you, then it's a simple choice and it's you don't really learn that much. Okay. Now that yeah, that doesn't mean that everybody that's higher entropy, you know, has to I mean lower entropy, you know, has to go in a dysfunctional family. That's not the case. Sometimes getting a good start with a with a functional family is a, is really a good start for everybody, you know? But there are challenges that people will take that are difficult just to meet the challenge. Why would anybody want to take on an avatar that was living in a place where everybody was starving to death? Well, that's a challenge. You might not live very long, but the quality that you could live in the time that you had, you could do a lot of growing with that choice. See? There may be a lot of growth in that choice. Then you're your choices would be to kind of wallow in self-pity or to not, to care about people, to share. That would be your choice. And just making that choice, even if nobody lived to be more than 35 because everybody starved to death by then, it'd be short, but it might be very meaningful if that was a choice. that, And that would be a very stark choice. It wouldn't be the lots of not only white against black, it would, you know, usually in our world, it's all full of grays. You know, you go from the white all the way down to the dirty white that looks just like the gray all the way down to the black. And you've got all of these choices going on, which is more confusing. Being in that place where everybody starves, it'd be kind of a black and white choice. It'd be easier maybe to make a better choice there and still would be a good, a good choice. So every situation is a situation where you can grow up. Some are harder than others. Let's say you've de-evolved the last 10 lifetimes. Well, let's put you in an easy place next time. Let's not challenge you too much because you need a little reinforcing, a little encouragement. You know, it's like the father who puts the basketball hoop only, uh, you know, six feet off the ground rather than the nine feet where it's supposed to be so that kids get a sense of being able to do it. Builds their confidence, you know. So if you've failed a lot, you might get something easier that makes it a little harder to fail until you get some confidence back again. If you're really a hot shot and you've been growing really strongly and your entropy is low, well, you don't need another cushy situation. You need something that lets you see how you do when the rubber meets the road and you have hard choices. What kind, what do you do with those hard choices? And then you, Evolve or de-evolve. And when you de-evolve by making poor choices, it's not like you, you go from heaven to hell. You know, it's not like you, you, uh, do, doom yourself forevermore. It's a, there's small increments both ways. You'd have to make a whole lot of really bad choices over and over and over again to seriously de-evolve. Everybody makes some bad choices. You know, bad choices, it's part of your learning process to make better choices is to make bad choices. So that's, 
that's how it works. So yes, being born into a dysfunctional family may be a good thing. Being born into an area that's full of war and strife and famine, that could be a positive thing. It's not about having fun. It's about making choices and growing up. But being born in a, in a really nice family where everybody's lovey and there's plenty of money to go around and you inherit $10 million when you're 18 and life has always been cushy, well, that's makes it easy in some ways, but it also gives you another whole set of tough choices. What do you do with those resources? Do you puff up your ego to where you're better than you know and everybody else and you abuse people who are beneath you, or do you use that resources to help people to be part of the solution? You see, choices. Now, puffing up the ego is the easy choice. Not puffing up the ego is the hard choice. So there's, yes, dysfunctional and hard things aren't necessarily so bad. They all give us challenges. The idea is not to refuse the challenge, but to take it and grow from it. So that's why when I was telling, um, who was it now? I forgot the person we're talking about that if you, um, who was that? Anyway, if you um, have bad things that happen, you don't pass the test, your world doesn't work out, just think of that as another set of choices. Think of that as another set of opportunities. It'll take you some other direction, but there'll be growing opportunities in that process. And then start re replanning your next success from there rather than where you thought you would be. So in that case, it's really hard to ever be upset. It's really hard to get angry. It's really hard to be sad. It's really hard to be negative because everything you're in, no matter how much it hurts, it's an opportunity to excel. It's an opportunity to make good choices. So your next trip to the dentist, don't see it as a terrible thing. It's an opportunity <laughs> to let go of your fear and accept whatever pain may come as okay. You know, life is full of these little choices. Okay, yeah, thank you. That that clears things up a lot. Uh, I did have another question, but I um I don't want to take up too much time. Uh, I don't know, Donna, is uh, you want to move? It's on? okay, Eric. Go go right ahead with your question. Okay. So my other question was about the category of things that are aware but not conscious. So things that are aware but they do not have a decision space. Um, when we say that a human being or an animal is conscious, that means that an IUOC is logged onto that avatar and is making choices with that avatar in order to evolve. <clears throat> when we say that a rock is neither conscious nor aware, that means that nothing is logged on to them. They just make up the VR environment. But what's the purpose of things such as plants being aware but not conscious? Is there an RUOC logged on to them trying to learn from their experiences even though they can't make any choices? Why doesn't the system just put these in the same category as rocks, just like in most of our VR video games? Well... That is a really good question, and it's one I pondered quite a bit because when I got to this point of, of awareness without being conscious, kind of a gray area in between, and I asked the same question that you just asked and spent some time um, trying to figure that one out. 
And what I noticed is that if you go into a particularly a very old uh, woods, a forest that's old growth, what they call old growth forest, it's been there for several hundreds of years, perhaps it's not, you know, been logged or anything. You get a different feel. You get a different connection to that forest than you do one that's just been logged off to a paper mill and now it's had the last 10 years to grow back up again. You get a different feel to it altogether. It's just a different set of connections. And trees that are very old, you can put your hand up against them and you get a sense of of awareness in them, a sense of knowing, a sense of being that's not just like you do when you pick up a rock. There's more to it than that. So I had that in my experience. And to try to answer this question, it occurred to me that perhaps there is a a being, if you will, that is not is not necessarily in each tree in the sense that you have an avatar, an IUOC, playing each uh, human avatar. You have an IUOC playing each human avatar. It's more that you would have a being that is incorporating that forest. Um, I don't know. There, there was a little cartoon that went around. Um, it was a, about uh, environmentalism. And what was it? Um, the voice, the forest had a voice. There was the voice of the forest, the spirit of the forest, if you will. And it was an advocate of the forest. And it's that sort of thing. So I believe when you get the things like that, you would have, and it may be not an IUOC. It may be the system itself. It may be the LCS. It may not be what we call an IUOC. But there's something there that is awareness that is kind of the advocate or the or the spirit of that whole area, that contiguous area, that, that forest. And as the forest gets older, it accumulates that. So if the forest is young, it just got logged 20 years ago, there's still something there, but it's not as strong. It's not as obvious. It's not as easy to connect to. As it ages, as that, as that um, exists for a longer and longer time, it gets stronger and stronger and to the point that if you go out into such a, an old growth forest and sit and meditate, you can speak to that spirit of that forest. You can connect to it. You can get information at that being level of trees, if you will. Now, it's not going to converse with you in whatever your language is. You know, it's not going to speak German or French or something to you. It's not like that so much, but intuitively you will connect. You will get feelings out of it and things that you can maybe turn into metaphors. But there is that sort of connection with with nature that's been there a long time. So that's why I did come to that conclusion that that trees do have a spiritual component in the sense that they have awareness, even though they don't make choices because they have awareness of their environment. They have awareness of, you know, they probably have an awareness when lumberjacks move into the area and start and start on the edge of the forest and start chopping things down. The trees that are deeper in probably have a sense of that, that that's going on. And there's that sense of dread. You can, you can feel that. So there is something palatable about that 
spirit or that non-physical part of those trees that is something that you can communicate with and interact with. And uh, so that's kind of how I placed it. But, you know, like I tell people, you know, I'm just making things up uh, based on my own experience. I have experience and then I try to make up a model that models that experience. And the model has to be not in conflict with any other experience that I have. So putting it all into a model that fits together is basically what I'm doing. So that's where that comes from. I have been in places where you can talk to the trees. You can connect to, to that um, energy. There is something there besides just an inert hunk of wood. There's some other components to it that is that that is living, if you will, there. And I suspect it's true of all of all things, of all things that are living. You know, you may, if you had a prairie that was a didn't have any trees on it, but it was a you know a grass and shrub prairie, and that prairie had been there for you know 200 years, you probably could get the same kind of feel for it, for the bushes and the and the grass and the animals that lived there, and it would have its own sense, its own presence, its own spirit, if you will, which is what a lot of the indigenous people found, you know, when they did move into prairies that had been that way and had been, un, you know, untouched for millennia before they got there. And you have indigenous people who have all sorts of spirits, you know, in trees and prairies and animals and all sorts of things. And some of that is fact it's not just their imagination it's that those things do have living things do have some other component to them but they're not making choices the tree doesn't decide that it's going to do things well at least we don't think so now the more we find out the more our science finds out about trees you know we may find them making choices in their own limited way no they can't get up and walk someplace else you know and then replant their roots but they may be cooperative and interactive in other ways. Now, if those ways are just algorithmic, then they're not conscious. It's just algorithms that help them interact with each other. Just stuff that has evolved to do that, you know, symbiotic evolution that is all, uh, is all, uh, algorithmic. Then they're not conscious. But if they actually make choices, then they are conscious. So we don't know about things like trees yet, whether they're really conscious or not. So far, the evidence says not, but we don't know a whole lot about the inner life of trees either. So, you know, 20 years from now, we may know enough to put trees in the conscious place because we'll find them, you know, they, they show the trees will help protect a smaller tree that's a little further out. You know, it's kind of spreading the, the forest a little further out and that tree starts to have problems. The, the the more mature trees will actually, through the root system and through a set of, of symbiotic relationships between the roots, the tree, the fungus, bacteria, and other things, they will actually feed that other tree and help it survive. Well, if that's a choice, then they're conscious. If that's not a choice, then they're not. And at this point, we don't know whether that's a choice or not a choice. If we can tell that, if we saw enough of that, if at every case they always help that tree, then it's probably not a choice. Not for sure, we don't know, but probably. If sometimes they do and sometimes they don't, then it would look more like a choice. 
But even then, it's hard to really know for sure. But science can find those things out. Assuming that they don't make choices, do you see any um, benefits in evolutionary terms for them being aware but not conscious? Since they're they're not making choices, I don't see a lot of um, evolutionary benefits for the system. I would agree with that. There's not a lot of of, uh, evolutionary benefit for the system if they don't make choices. But that doesn't mean that they don't, they in themselves create choices for people. When they have that, you know, when the, when the woods, when that old growth woods has a spirit, people connect to that. If you spend some time in that forest, you're different when you walk out of it. And if you just walk and sit down in a forest that's only a decade or two old, it doesn't change you that much. It's just a, it's a bunch of pretty trees. There's a difference. They have an effect on people that affects people's choices, helps people grow up. They become part of the environment where you can connect to things, know that there's something bigger than just you and your material environment. Because people who have lived with that kind of nature, they appreciate nature as a living thing. They appreciate it not just as inanimate objects, but as objects with life, with spirit, and they interact with them as such. And that is a, it's a resource for us to help us grow up by having that kind of a thing there and letting us understand that, uh, you know, horses and dogs and cats all are treasures for us to interact with, not just things to use. They're not just stuff for us to, to use for our own benefit, that they're actually something to be treasured. And it's the same about that old growth forest. There's something there to be treasured. It's not just, you know, lumber that can turn into paper, but there's something more than that. It's something needs that, that uh, we should protect and that uh, people would find can help change their life just spending a couple of days in such a forest. It's different than spending a couple of days, you know, in somebody's cornfield. It's, it's, a, there's a big difference between the two. So, so that's why I'd say that the system would support it. It's, it's part of a, a resource to help us grow up. Okay. Thank you. Yes. That's very interesting. Thank you, Eric. Thank you, Tom. Frank, you also had another question to ask. If you would like to go ahead. Thanks, Donna. Yeah, just a quick follow-up question, uh, still on the subject of pain. Uh, I heard stories that some Buddhist masters uh, are apparently able to kind of anesthetize, oh, I don't know how to pronounce this word in English, uh, anesthetize or something uh, themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was a story that one master had to undergo uh, surgery and he didn't uh, trust um the doctor, so on top of that, he also kind of programmed himself to uh, not feel any pain for a certain number of hours. Um, so I just wondered uh, if you can confirm that this is possible. It seems difficult to believe for most of us, but I, well, yes, I wouldn't be surprised if you say that that's possible. Yes, that's possible. It's it's how you and it's how you interpret what's going on. You know, you and. People who have chronic 
illnesses such as uh, kidney disease, have a lot of pain and excruciating pain. They have the unfortunate choice of either being drugged up all the time and living a life as only a semi-conscious zombie or having terrible pain, but being clear. They have found that many of these people, not all of them, but many of these people can be taught to just suppress their pain. And basically what you do is you, you just learn to reinterpret those signals as not pain. So <clears throat> the consciousness just doesn't accept that pain signal. It says, yeah, okay, I feel that, but I don't interpret it as pain. It's okay. That's kind of the epitome of what I was calling acceptance before. That's when you just accept it, but don't react to it. It's there, but you're not reacting. And in many ways, you feel like you're not there. You almost feel that you and your body are separate things. So is that um, kind of letting go of the data stream, of that part of the data stream? And you could uh, stand any sort of torture or surgery uh, as long as you want it? Or is there some threshold above which you get pulled back into this reality and you have yeah. no choice but to interpret that data uh, as pain? It's it's not that the that the pain data is not in the data stream. The pain data is still in the data stream because that data stream is created because of the rule set. That data stream represents the rule set. The rule set says that there's going to be a lot of pain. It's that the consciousness doesn't accept it, doesn't process it. It, it says it's there, but I'm not going to process it. And yes, there's probably some threshold where you might lose that that state of being able to process and not process what you like. You know, it's possible you'd get to a point where you couldn't do it. But let's say you had a an ability to do that completely, in which case then there would be no pain. Yes, you could be tortured or whatever else, and it may indeed kill you, but you wouldn't necessarily feel the pain. You'd just not process that data. Said, okay, here comes the data, but I'm not processing. Just put it in the bit bucket, and we're going to not deal with it. But it's still there. And I noticed that, and the reason I say what it does is it puts you in a space where you are separate from the pain. You're separate from the body. It's almost like your body, you know, in a way, I guess it would be like being out of body, where here you are floating in the ceiling above the dentist chair in the dentist office, and you're not feeling any of the pain because it's working on the body and you're not connected to the body's sensors. It's that sort of thing. So you realize you're in a dentist chair and you're realizing the drill is going and working on your teeth, but you just don't process that, in which case your body becomes numb, if you will. It becomes to where it's desensitized from the pain. And it's just like your body is made of cardboard or rock or wood or something else. It's, 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 uh, it's no longer in the, you know, your senses aren't working there. Well, they are working. Data stream sends it down to the IUOC, but the IUOC doesn't process it. So that is something you can do as you train your consciousness to work with the, the data that you get. It's a, so yes, monks or people who are very good at, at doing that can, can do that sort of thing. 
the people who have kidney, and I think there's a couple of other ailments where it's just chronic pain. There isn't anything can do about it. it the pain's just going to be there uh, forever, 24 hours a day. Some of them cannot learn it. Some of them cannot let go of that pain. But I think it's like 50, 60, 70% can learn to just ignore the pain. And if you ask them, well, you know, can you feel that pain? They'll say, yeah, I know it's there, but it doesn't bother me. It's there, but it's kind of walled off in a space where you're not processing it. Mm -hmm. So, yes, that's that's possible. But, of course, if you're very, very fearful of that pain, then you're not going to be in that space. That's the opposite of being in that space. That's where you make the pain much worse. So the opposite of that is making it less. If I may, I have a very quick uh, follow-up question also on uh, fear of death. Um, there are people for uh, who are afraid of uh, afraid to swim, for example, or afraid to go through tunnels. Could that be that in their past, in their last lifetime, they died drowning or they died being buried alive, and that some sort of trauma got carried over, or is that uh, probably to do with some other reason? It probably has to do with some other reason, but that is possible. It may be that they had that trauma and somewhere, not intellectually, but somewhere at that being level, that trauma is sitting there and is giving them that fear. So they wouldn't have it intellectually. They wouldn't say, oh, I got drowned, you know, last three incarnations, so I'm really frightened about getting in water. It wouldn't be in their intellect, but that quality could be in their being level. So that's a possibility. Or I think for most people who are in those kinds of situations, the thing that bothers them most, it's, it's the fear of death, yes, but it's also the fear of being out of control. We saw a lot of that in the very beginning of aviation where there was, uh, you know, public aviation. And it seemed like probably 30 or 40 percent of the people that got on airplanes were terrified. Sitting in that airplane, you know, 20,000 feet, obviously something goes wrong. You're going to die. And your your survival is out of your control, out of your hands. It's in the hands of the mechanics who put the plane together and of the pilots who are who are running that machine. Your life is in somebody else's hands entirely. Something goes wrong, you're helpless. And that's the thing that frightens them. They're underground in a tunnel. They're in a cave. What if it caved in? You're helpless. There'd be nothing you could do about it. What if you, you know, are in the water and you, you can't breathe underwater? You'd be helpless. So I think there's fear of being not in control. Whenever we fear that something important to us is totally outside of our control, that creates fear. And, yeah, and that's part of it. And the fear of death, I'm sure, is in there, too. I mean, that's the reason that you're out of control. But those two things go together. A fear of being out of control. I shouldn't say out of control, but that you have no control over the situation is uh, something that is paralyzing to a lot of people. And what they have to do is just accept that, yes, it's out of my control. You know, I get in that airplane, and if something bad happens to it, like the wings fall off or all the engines blow up or it gets hit by a missile or something, you know, everybody's going to die. And I'll just take my chances. I accept that, and I just won't worry about it. And people get on planes and do their crossword puzzles and listen to music and whatever, and they never think about that because 
Now they're used to it. Getting in an automobile is the same way. As soon as you get in an automobile and drive it out on the streets, your probability of death just went up from when you were sitting in your living room. I mean, you could die in your living room, but when you get in that automobile, it goes up. But we just all learn to accept that because it's a common part of our environment. So we accept it and go on. And when we do, there's no fear associated with it anymore. And the fear of death or tunnels or, you know, the rest of it works the same way. Once you accept it as, well, if that happens, that happens. I'm not going to worry about it. Then the fear has gone. So that's why acceptance is the thing that gets rid of the fear. Thank you very much. Tom, because it's relevant, there was a portion of a question that is relevant to what Frank just brought up. Uh, someone had asked as a part of a question we hadn't gotten to, if going under general anesthesia is dangerous for someone and they are adept at the out-of-body state, would that be a viable thing to take a chance on? I mean, that, this is getting into the realm of medical advice, but as a theory question, would that be... Yeah. Um, no, that doesn't have anything to do with it. Whether, the, whether you're, say, allergic to the, to the anesthesia drug or not is just biology. That's rule set. That happens to be the way the rules set came together to produce your body and your biochemistry. And that has nothing to do with whether you can go out of body or not. That's irrelevant. Um, if you're I know allergic, it, doesn't, it doesn't have to do with going out of body, but would they be able to bypass going under general anesthesia if they were adept at out of body, I believe was oh, the question. Could they? Could they go out of body instead of get anesthesia? Well, maybe. It depends on them. You know, if they were one of these monks that we just heard about, then they didn't have to go out of body. They could just not process the data, accept <laughs> the pain, but not deal with it. Uh, if you just went out of body and um, somebody, you know, cut you open, you would probably immediately wake up screaming on the on the bed, right? If, some, if you're out of body... Uh, and somebody throws a bucket of cold water on you, you're going to end up awake, suddenly angry in a wet bed. So, no, going out of body doesn't uh, enable you to do that unless you're really good at it to the point where those sorts of things, you can still turn them off, which is exactly what the monks were doing. They were turning that off. Well, when most people go out of body, they don't turn off their senses to that degree. They still, if the telephone rings or if somebody says the house is on fire, they'll hear that and they'll process it. They just don't operate on it. You know, they don't operate on the, on the sound. Let's say, you know, people, some people live in cities, can't get away from the sound of traffic. You know, the sound of traffic is just an ever-present sound. Well, they can still learn how to go out of body and they let the traffic go so they don't process it, but it's still there. If they want to, open that channel, they can still be with it. They can still hear it. Well, in that case, if something loud happened, let's say a car backfired, their attention would immediately shift to the bang, and then they'd say, oh, it's just a car, and immediately we go right back to the way it was. So that would not be good. If your attention immediately shifted to the fact you're on an operating table and somebody just cut you with a knife, then it would be very hard for you to go back to the way it was because you'd have this pain you were dealing with. 
So no, the out of body state is not a is not something that is going to take the place of anesthesia. It uh, generally not for most people. And if you if it could take the place for anesthesia, then you wouldn't need it. You could be just like the monks that that uh, Vinicus uh, told us about. You could suppress it without that. Okay, that's that's good. So we don't recommend that at all. <laughs> no. um, <laughs> all right. One last question we might be able to get in is uh, controlling panic attacks and inducing being level changes. This comes from Abdul. How can one put an end to panic attacks symptoms such as a pounding heart or shortness of breath that occur on a daily basis? It seems to be a struggle with fears. Techniques that help in overcoming these symptoms involve accepting them and not being scared of them. What do you recommend? How can one permanently put an end to these debilitating systems? If conquering fear is the answer, how does one achieve that? Um, yes, you're right. It, that the panic attack is fear, and it's probably a very general fear, uh, like a fear of being out of control. Events are happening, and you have no control over them. It's probably a control issue more than a death issue or something else. Um, You have to have an intent. There's a couple of ways to approach it. One is to have an intent that you really want to get rid of that fear. This fear of being things beyond your control. Things are spinning out of control. You don't know how they're going to end up. It could be bad, and then you lock up into this this panic attack. Um it could be that what goes out of control is yourself. You might feel yourself going out of control or you're not quite sure that you are uh, worthy or good or, or good enough or something. And then you feel that sense of, of uh, not being capable spins out of control and locks you up in a panic attack. But whatever it is, you need to, one, I guess, make peace with it. You need to look at that thing and, and have an intent that I want to get rid of it. Not that I want to suppress it and I want to push it underground so it doesn't bother me, but I need to face it and I want to get rid of it. And if your intent is from the being level, not just from the intellectual level, and if you think about it many times a day, just keep that intent in your mind. I want to face that fear and accept it. Let it go, and you really want to do that, then it will start to happen all by itself. The process will unfold in front of you, and it'll be your own process, unique to you, your personality, and your fear, and it'll start to unfold. But if it's just, if your idea is just at the intellectual level, I sure would like to get rid of this thing, and that's an intellectual thought, then nothing much will happen. It will still be there. But if you can get to the being level to where you really want to face the fear, accept it and deal with it. Accept the uncertainty. Okay, that's what a, a fear of being out of control is really a, another name for it, is a fear of uncertainty. You don't know what's going to happen. And because you can imagine bad things happening, then you panic. You lock up. Well, and you feel that panic attack coming on would be a good time to start thinking positively, not negatively. It would be a good time 
to start that meditation on, I want to face this. I don't want to run from it and hide from it. And my my panic attack is hiding from it. The fear comes up and I want to go jump in a hole and hide. That's the panic attack. Well, I don't, I'm not going to run with it, run from it. I'm going to deal with it. What is the worst that could happen? What is the worst thing that could happen? And something will probably, particularly if you're in a meditation state, something will flip into your mind and that'll give you a hint of what the sphere is all about. And you just need to say then, well, I can accept that. If that's the worst and that happens, I'll go on. I'll live with that. It'll change my life, but I will, I will learn from it. I'll go on. Everybody else will learn from it. Everybody else will have to go on and it'll be just the way life is. One of those things. The world will still turn. Everything will still work. I will still have opportunities. Not necessarily the way I thought or the way I wanted, but they'll still be there. And if you just keep dealing with it, I think the key is to have that intent, being level intent, that you really want to get over it. The way forward will come. So, you know, panic attacks are a hard thing to deal with, and your place to deal with them is just as you feel them beginning to happen. Once it's happened, you're kind of locked out. Your mind's locked up and you're in panic and that's not the time to be thinking about how you're going to deal with it. It's, it's too late then. So you got to deal with it before it happens. And as you feel it coming on, you need to really focus on dealing with it. But even before it feels like it's coming on, you need to be dealing with it, working with that. What is that fear? What's the worst thing that could happen? Okay, the worst thing that could happen is that, you know, uh, my spouse divorces me, I lose my job, um, you know, my children drive their car off the edge of a cliff, and it all happens on the same day, and that's the worst thing that could happen to me. And, you know, I, I lose both legs and arms. All right, now that's the worst thing that's going to happen here, but you'd have to say, well, if that happens, I'll deal with it. I'll get over it. I'll learn how to put a pencil in my mouth and print so I can communicate uh, with people or I can draw or I can still talk maybe. I'll learn to deal with what I have to learn to deal with and they will be challenges. It won't be pretty, but I'll deal with it. I'll learn from it. I'll grow from it. And so will everybody else grow from what happens. So you just accept that. Look at the worst thing. And say, well, that worst thing, as long as I'm still alive, I still have opportunities to grow. And I will accept it. I'll live my life however it comes to me. So that is the beginning, you see. It's like, give me your worst shot and I will deal with it. And that pulls the teeth out of the fear. And if you do that, every 10 minutes of your day, just spend five seconds thinking that thought. That tends to push it into your being level. Repetition pushes things into your being level. Just thinking a thought one or two times, it stays in your intellect. But by repeating it, so if every 10 minutes, you every 10 minutes you think, I'm going to get rid of this panic attack. I'm going to deal with what I'm afraid of. First, what is it that I'm afraid of? What, what gives me stress? Where does my stress come from? And, uh, if you can't tell where it comes from, then just say, well, I'll accept anything, whatever it is. I'll accept it. What are the things that I think are most horrible? 
All right, I accept those things. And you just keep working at it. Like I say, five seconds, ten seconds, every ten minutes, just come to the issue, have a desire that you are going to stop these panic attacks from happening. You're going to face the fear. Whatever that means, do it. And eventually, over the next six months, they'll go away. Probably less than that. Three months, four months. But it requires you to be dedicated enough to every ten minutes have that thought come up in your mind and put energy into it. By doing that, you're modifying the probable future. That probable future is a future with you without panic attacks. And you will make that happen just by having a focused intent on it from the being level, not from the intellectual level. All right. Thank you, Tom. And thank you, everyone, for being here today and for your great questions. We'll see you next time.